This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Hey, it's Sarah. I'm your host for this edition of the News Roundup. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly changing and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. Stay up to date with the news by listening to your local NPR member station and visiting npr.org for all the latest. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm NPR's Sarah McCammon, and it's time for another edition of the News Roundup. The official end of summer brought a week of sweltering temperatures across much of the country, with heat indices hitting over 100 in many places, including here in the nation's capital. And apart from the weather, we have a lot of political news coming up this hour. Vice President Kamala Harris breaks silence from the White House on the legal troubles of former President Trump. Everyone has their right to their day in court. But absolutely, people should be held accountable, but under our system of law. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton's impeachment trial begins. Attorney General Ken Paxton is innocent and therefore pleads not guilty. And farewell to a legend. That's right. We said goodbye to Jimmy Buffett this week. With us this week is Idris Kaloon, the Washington Bureau Chief for The Economist. Thanks for being here, Idris. Great. Thanks for having me. Megan Scully, Congress Team Leader at Bloomberg News. Welcome back. Thank you. And Naftali Ben-David, White House Editor at The Washington Post. Hi, Naftali. Hi. Thanks for having me. And we were just saying it's we're all in studio together, which is a really nice thing to say at this point <laughs> in where we are in, in, in our nation's history. And I don't want to say ever post-pandemic, but to be able to see you all face-to-face is really nice. This week, the Guttmacher Institute released a new study about abortion trends since Roe v. Wade was overturned 15 months ago. The Guttmacher Institute is a research organization that supports abortion rights, and they broke down the data state by state and found that places where abortion is still legal, perhaps no surprise, saw a big increase in patients. Illinois, for example, which borders several states with abortion bans like Indiana and Missouri, saw a 69 percent increase in abortion. New Mexico, which borders Texas, saw a 220 percent increase. You know, Megan, I've spent time in both of those states. I know they've been gearing up for this. Um, But these are big numbers. Does anything surprise you about this data? You know, I think that we saw, we were expecting to see, particularly in these these border states um, that you mentioned, um, Wyoming also saw a huge increase, which we don't typically think of as a a progressive bastion, but given its location and and the current framework of its laws, um, you know, they saw more abortions um, within that state as well. Um, I think that uh, what we're seeing is is this, you know, that the the Dobbs decision didn't tamp down abortion in this country. It, It just changed where it happens. Um, abortion clinics themselves have relocated in a lot of places to to southern Illinois, um, to to New Mexico, uh, to make it these these procedures more available to women seeking them in states in which they're banned. And we're seeing that people are, are following. Yes. 
You know, Republicans have been trying to figure out a cohesive message on abortion since Roe v. Wade was overturned, and especially since polls still indicate the majority of Americans support some form of legal abortion. In a closed-door meeting this week, strategists met with GOP senators to talk about their messaging around abortion, including the idea of moving away from the term pro-life. Naftali, what's behind this concern on the part of Republicans about how they're discussing this issue? Well, I mean, I think it's relatively clear that they're afraid that having won what was, let's remember, a decades-long effort to get Roe v. Wade overturned, that that's having real political ramifications not in their favor. Uh, And so they're looking for a way to send a message, we're not extremist, you know, we don't generally, although some do, support a blanket ban on abortions, you know, we want this exception or that exception, and they're looking for a way to convey that. But I think the elections that we've seen since Dobbs have played very much in Democrats' favor, and they very much hinged on uh, the question of abortion. Um, And as far as that, the numbers that you were talking about earlier, I think this shows why much of the current front in abortion is about travel. You know, states are trying to stop their residents from traveling to get abortions. Even cities and counties are trying to pass statutes that say you can't use a county road to get an abortion. They're using terms like abortion trafficking to describe that travel in echoes, of course, of child trafficking, sex trafficking. So I think this whole question of how places that are very much against abortion prevent their residents from finding ways to get them is now front and center. Congress has less than a month to avoid a government shutdown. The deadline for Congress and the Biden administration to reach an agreement on the federal budget is September 30th, 30th, which is the last day of the fiscal year. The White House has asked for $44 billion in extra emergency spending to be added to that funding bill. It would go toward Ukraine, toward federal emergency management services, we're seeing all these disasters, and toward border security. Idris, how likely is Congress to be able to reach an agreement on this funding bill? I think it's increasingly unlikely that they will have a coherent plan together for the next fiscal year. Uh, What is likelier is that a continuing resolution might be agreed upon, which would keep funding levels at the same uh, rate that they are now, while giving the House and the Senate, who are controlled by different parties, the opportunity to go through the 12 different appropriations bills that they're having to do this time as opposed to a single omnibus package. But at the moment, I think that there's reason to be uh, somewhat pessimistic that even that continuing resolution will get through. The Freedom Caucus, which is the uh, further right contingent of the Republicans in the House, um, have issued a list of preconditions for them to even agree to a continuing resolution. Uh, Among them are the passage of a Republican-backed border security bill, which Democrats are not going to go along with, and other demands like ending the weaponization of the FBI, uh, eliminating woke politics from the DOD. Um, All those things seem like they won't necessarily manifest. So I think that we might be uh, in line for another uh, government shutdown. That's certainly what Ted Cruz, the hero or villain of a previous government shutdown, has predicted himself. Megan, uh, Idris just ticked through a couple of Republican concerns, objections. I mean, what what is the center of the negotiations about right now? Well, what's interesting here is that the majorities of both parties, including the majority of Republicans, uh, would be happy to sign on to a continuing resolution. The Where this is playing out is among the this handful of ultra-conservatives in the House, the House Freedom Caucus, as you mentioned. Um, and it's, it's about whether or not Speaker Kevin McCarthy is willing to do some battle with them. Remember, these are the same lawmakers who, who have who held a gun to his head during the the debt ceiling negotiations and and weren't very happy with the the ultimate outcome of that. They want deeper cuts. They want these other policy areas addressed. If they if if Kevin McCarthy brought up a continuing resolution in the House tomorrow, 
it would likely pass, but it would pass with objections from these lawmakers who can call for a motion to remove the speaker. Um, so it, it's a matter of him sort of it's, – it's this continued theme throughout his speakership of walking this delicate line between striking a deal with Democrats, a deal that most Senate Republicans even would support, um, and, and, and risking really um, angering this restive right flank he has. We heard again and again that the risk of defaulting on the debt ceiling was, you know, catastrophic to the economy. Natalie, what's the risk here if an agreement can't be reached on the budget? Smaller, probably. I mean, we've now had several of these government shutdowns, and I think people are almost becoming inured to them. For one thing, lawmakers keep exempting various parts of the government that they really don't want to shut down, and that makes the effect uh, less dramatic. Uh, and also, it's just becoming more and more routine. I mean, one thing that could complicate this debate in the fall is the specter of impeachment, because one of the things that Speaker McCarthy seems to be doing is dangling the prospect of at least an impeachment inquiry of President Biden to entice some of his right wing members to support spending bills. So we could have this very large and kind of dramatic tangle up between spending and impeachment um, that could engulf much of Congress toward the end of the year. Now, on Tuesday, the Senate returned from its summer recess, and so did Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell after two recent very public medical scares. Last week, of course, he froze during a press conference in his home state of Kentucky. In July, he also appeared to freeze in front of reporters on Capitol Hill, raising questions about his health at age 81. He says he's going to finish his Senate term. The congressional physician has cleared him, saying that one possible explanation is dehydration. But Rand Paul, who is a doctor and the other Republican senator from Kentucky, had this to say. I practiced medicine for 25 years and it doesn't look like dehydration to me. It looks like a focal neurologic event. That doesn't mean it's incapacitating, doesn't mean he can't serve, but it means that somebody ought to wake up and say, wow, this looks like a seizure and maybe there's some seizure medication that could be given for this. A lot is at stake here. McConnell's seat is up for re-election in 2025. Obviously, he's an extremely powerful figure. Uh, Idris, what are we hearing from members of both parties about McConnell's ability to finish his term? Well, we're not seeing that much defection from Senate Republicans, uh, at least publicly. Uh, they all seem to be behind Mitch McConnell. And, um, you know, I think that they are expecting that he's going to be the leader of the party for a while now. Obviously, there are, uh, you know, several uh, Republicans below him who are a bit younger, uh, all named John, John Thune, John Barrasso, uh, John Cornyn, etc., um, who would be able to take up the mantle uh, if if McConnell really needed to give it up. Um, in terms of what that would mean for the Senate, I think that uh, the people who might succeed him aren't going to be dramatically different in terms of their outlook on policy. I think that, for example, on Ukraine funding, um, all of them would be uh, in favor of increasing funding of the supplemental appropriation that you mentioned earlier. Um, which is going to be a big issue within the House, where there's a much more robust isolationist faction there. Um, so I think that that is something to to look forward to, is, is this difference between the, the House and the Senate Republicans on this. Megan, 30 seconds or so, what do you make of Republicans' unwillingness to, to defect, other than maybe this mild criticism from Rand Paul? Well, it's not just Republicans who are unwilling to defect. It's Democrats, too. And remember, we have an 80-year-old president um, who is running for re-election, um, and age is a huge factor. Um, there's also Diane Feinstein in the Senate whose whose health has been in question. She's quite a bit older than Mitch McConnell's. This is not a new issue within the Senate. Um, I remember covering, you know, Robert Byrd in, in, in his last years of the Senate. Um, 
this is something that that has continued to be an issue, but the the presence of social media and the presence of cameras on the Hill has certainly elevated it. It's the News Roundup. We're heading to a quick break, and we'll be back with our panel in just a moment. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill, FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Let's get back to the news roundup and we'll stick with politics. On Tuesday, the Republican-led Senate in Texas began their impeachment trial for Republican Attorney General Ken Paxton. I believe that it violated the oath. Why? Because he was taking actions not on behalf of the state of Texas, but on behalf of one individual. That was former first assistant attorney general of Texas and whistleblower Jeff Mateer testifying at the trial on Wednesday. So Paxton is accused of committing bribery and abusing the power of his office. He's been suspended without pay since May when 121 Texas House members voted overwhelmingly to impeach him. Idris, what exactly is Paxton being tried for? So he's being accused of bribery and abuse of office to help a real estate developer who has also been indicted uh, federally. Um, and what's remarkable about the Paxton trial is that in Texas's 200-year history, only three officials have been impeached before. Uh, and the fact that Paxton has been uh, you know, impeached and is now being – his trial is being conducted by his fellow Republicans. Um, Texas does not have very many Democrats who are able to launch a partisan witch hunt um, against him. So that – trial is ongoing. Uh, if it's con- if he's convicted by the Senate, um, he would be removed from office and, and barred from holding any political office as well. And uh, one interesting wrinkle to all of this is that uh, his wife, Angela Paxton, is a state senator and is, is sitting in on the trial um, as well, although she won't be voting because of the conflict of interest. You know, you make an important point there. I mean, this is a very red state. Republicans are overwhelmingly in control. And, and yet this is playing out. What does that say about uh, the charges against him? I think it shows how shocking they were um, uh, among Republicans. I think that there was a sense there that uh, the conduct that he's accused of was so outlandish and so out of the fold that it needed to be uh, rectified. And that's, I mean, you know, Paxton has been no, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 he's been an acquaintance to this kind of accusation for a long time. Uh, but it finally uh, boiled over. I think he, he picked a, a spat with a very powerful uh, state legislator, um, which precipitated uh, all of this. But now it's clear that a lot of his fellow party members are willing to go along uh, with uh, with this trial and with this impeachment. Neftali, as Idris just mentioned, the attorney general's wife, Angela Paxton, is, is a sitting state senator. Is she involved in the trial at all? Well, she's not going to be able to vote, um, which in some sense counts as a vote against removal because you have to have two-thirds voting to remove and she won't be able to cast a vote one way or the other. But one of the most dramatic things about it is that uh, an alleged affair that the attorney general had is pretty central to this case uh, and whether he took actions on behalf of his mistress that were inappropriate. Um, And so she has to not only sit there knowing she can't vote, but also has to hear descriptions of this alleged affair. So it's adding this very personal, dramatic wrinkle to what already is a politically fraught case. 
And Megan, if Paxson is indeed found guilty, this would be the first time in more than a century that state lawmakers have ousted a colleague from elected office. I mean, what is the overall larger significance of this trial potentially? Well, you know, we're, this trial is happening at, at the same time that, that former President Donald Trump is facing charges um, relating to the 2020 election and, and his conduct there. Um, and what's what's so remarkable here is is that that Paxton has very strong MAGA credentials. Um, he remember after the 2020 election, he sued Georgia, Michigan. Pennsylvania and Wisconsin um, to try to get them to stop counting their electoral votes. Those were really bellwether states um, that that went to Joe Biden. So um, the fact that Republicans are are willing to 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 try this one of their own, um, this very strong Trump supporter. Think is quite telling, but at the same time, it, it's hard to extract that outside of this case. When you look at Donald Trump's uh, poll numbers right now, in, in terms of the the twenty twenty four presidential field, he's polling at above fifty percent, way ahead of any of his of his um, uh, any of his anyone rivals. his rivals. Yes, and so you know, I it 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 continues to show. On one hand, um, Donald Trump really being sort of the exception here mm-hmm. um, and and really uh, being immune to the kinds of things that, that affect others, like Ken Paxton in this case. Well, that's not all the news from Texas. On Wednesday, a federal judge ordered Republican Governor Greg Abbott to move those floating barriers in the Rio Grande that the state had installed to prevent illegal border crossings. This move is in line with the position of the U.S. Justice Department, which sued Abbott over this in July. The department argued that Texas does not have the authority to install the buoys in international waters. Texas will be required to cover the cost of moving those barriers, too. Idris, what was the judge's reasoning here? Um, well, the reasoning in, in that case was that the barrier that Texas had constructed, which uh, to paint you an image is a thousand foot long string of buoys with a mesh net underneath and uh, serrated saw blades in between. Uh, so pretty serious kind of horror movie stuff. Uh, but the argument from the, the federal uh, judge was that uh, Texas had installed this without informing uh, the federal government. It had put it in a navigable water um, and therefore uh, the Department of Justice's lawsuit was likely to succeed. I think I read yesterday that Texas had appealed to a federal uh, court uh, above the district one and that uh, the buoy is no longer being moved, uh, at least temporarily, while all of this gets sorted out. But obviously this is an incredibly kind of messy uh, legal situation. It might go uh, in front of the Supreme Court eventually. Um, but all of this is part of, of Governor Abbott's um, aggressive operation, which he calls Operation Lone Star. He launched it right after uh, President Biden came into office, um, in which he tries to tamp down what he says is federal inaction on, on the border. And that includes uh, shows like this, but also a campaign of busing uh, people uh, who arrive uh, to northern states. And actually there, it's had the kind of intended effect of, of uh, if you look at the reactions from lawmakers in New York, like Eric Adams and, and Kathy Hochul, the governor, uh, of basically saying that this is too much for them to deal with and, and sort of, you know, demonstrating that uh, at least what he thinks is that uh, blue states have, have you know, preached, but they haven't, uh, they haven't actually done done the actual work that is required of taking care like Texas has. Naftali, I saw you nodding a second ago. I mean, what are you watching when it comes to this case? Well, a lot. I mean, 
to me, it's it's it seems like only part of the goal of this case is to actually win in court. And a whole other part of it is just to make a statement. Texas and, in fact, Paxton, as well as Abbott, specialize in making these very dramatic gestures like flying migrants to other states. Um, and so this is a hard case to win, I think. The Fifth Circuit's very conservative, so they stayed the lower judge's order, and they're leaving the barriers in place for now. But whether they're going to get to stay in place is really an open question. These are navigable navigable waters. They're waters of the U.S. They are a border with Mexico. The federal government has some pretty good claims to having control over those things. But again, I'm not sure winning the case is really the sole point here. Abbott's very concerned with making a statement in the most dramatic way he can, and that's what he's doing here. A quick update now about the January 6th trials. The former national chairman of the far-right group, the Proud Boys, Enrique Terrio, was sentenced to 22 years in prison. Terrio was convicted of seditious conspiracy for his role in planning the January 6th attack at the Capitol. More than 1,100 people have been arrested on charges related to the attack. At least 630 have pleaded guilty, and more than 100 have been convicted at trial. Now, Megan, Terrio wasn't physically at the Capitol on January 6th, but he's largely considered a leader in the planning. What does this say about who's being held accountable with these trials and how they're being held accountable? Sure. Yes, he was in Baltimore at the time. He had been arrested a few days before January 6th. But he was the most spoken Proud Boy leader. He was the one who, um, who, you know, prosecutors claimed really orchestrated January 6th, you know, got the Proud Boys there on the scene um, and and was really sort of the, the mastermind behind it. Now, he got 22 years, which is the, the largest, the longest sentence of, of any others yet in, in terms of these cases. Not quite the 33 years that prosecutors wanted, but it still sent a strong message that somebody who was not there that day, but who had a hand in it was, you know, was found culpable of of these crimes. And if I, if I could add something to that, I mean, it seems to me like it's a little bit of an inflection point in the cases that the Justice Department is pursuing. To now, they've pursued more than a thousand cases of people who were there at the Capitol involved in actually trying to break in. But now we're also starting to see consequences for sort of the lawyers and the strategists and the people who were more involved in the electoral college uh, scheme, if you will. So we're seeing Giuliani have to pay money to election workers. Uh, Peter Navarro was found guilty just very recently of contempt of Congress. Steve Bannon's been found guilty. Uh, you know, John Eastman, another lawyer involved in all this stuff, is facing disbarment. And uh, so we're seeing, the, the, in a way, the focus of the prosecution's move from the people who were there to the planners of the of the scheme. And I think the goal here is deterrence. You know, they want the Justice Department wants to make sure that should something like this arise again, people think twice before they get involved in trying to subvert the election results. And really, like Megan said, this long sentence sends a message that the, the planners, the organizers are, are going to be held responsible. Now let's turn to the mounting legal trouble for the Republican presidential frontrunner. Special counsel Jack Smith is continuing his investigation into former President Donald Trump's attempts to overturn the 2020 election. In a court filing on Tuesday, special counsel Smith said Trump has made, quote, daily extrajudicial statements that threaten to prejudice the jury pool, end quote. Megan, what could Smith be referring to with this statement? He's referring to the former president's posts on his own social media platform. Um, you know, Donald Trump has always been a, um, a an avid social media user. That was that has been the basis of of his building a following, starting back in, with his first presidential bid. Um, and and he he's a master at this. Uh, and and what 
what Jack Smith is saying here is you, we're not going to be able to get an untainted jury if essentially Donald Trump is is making his case to the American people using his social media platform. So it's it's very interesting, and it, I think it underscores sort of the the unprecedented territory we are in here with a former president uh, being, you know facing several charges in multiple courts uh, as he's running for re-election. And, and how can you sort of put a muzzle on him and say you, you can't speak? You know, that, 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 that poses a whole other problem. But what Jack Smith is saying here is you shouldn't be making your case on social media. You know, the prosecutor is also continuing to look at how money raised off of Trump's claims of voter fraud was used. We saw those claims being used in fundraising and, and, and quite successfully in some cases. According to CNN, Smith is looking at how this money was used in attempts to breach voting equipment. Idris, what's the connection there? So, yeah, CNN reported earlier this week that Sidney Powell, the lawyer who uh, kind of was uh, uh, running a lot of the operations, legal operations, to try to overturn the election, uh, that the group, the nonprofit that she had set up called Defending the Republic, uh, raised funds uh, ostensibly to to help with post-election challenges. And uh, it appears that Jack Smith is investigating whether or not that money was used uh, to then uh, allow uh, groups uh, that Powell hired to access voting machines in a bunch of swing states, including Pennsylvania, Michigan, in Arizona, uh, as well as Georgia. And the Georgia uh, case, which centers on Coffee County, which is a, a rural uh, county there, uh, is the subject of charges by Fulton County DA, uh, Funny Willis, as well. Um, so there's going to be a lot of investigation there. But the the revelation from CNN is that Jack Smith is hauling the money uh, to see what and, and where this, this money might have ended up and whether it was used to improperly access the voting machines. And I do want to talk about the Georgia case. On Wednesday, the first hearing in that racketeering case stemming from the 2020 election interference case was televised. Former President Trump and his 18 co-defendants have all pleaded not guilty, waiving their right to an in-person arraignment. Fulton County Superior Court Judge Scott McAfee questioned how long the trial might take. Neftali, prosecutors say they expect to call more than 150 witnesses. We've been talking about all of these uh, competing or overlapping trials in at least four jurisdictions. What? How's the timeline going to play out in Georgia? Well, the one thing that was established uh, so far is that two of the defendants, uh, Kenneth Chesborough and Sidney Powell, uh, seem to be getting an October 23rd trial date. They wanted a speedy trial, which the other defendants have not asked for. And that's kind of interesting because it means that way ahead of the bulk of the trial, probably, uh, we're going to get an early flashpoint. They'll be found guilty or they'll be found innocent, giving a legal and political boost to one side or the other. Uh, But the other thing that it highlights is just, you know, there's all these defenses, 19 defendants, and they differ on when they want the trial. They differ on whether it should be severed. Uh, Some of them want to have their trials removed to federal court. Others are not seeking that. And it just shows the incredible complexity of this case, for better or worse. There are some critics of of, uh, Donald Trump who feel like it's a mistake to have such a sprawling, complex case. It's going to be a mess. The public won't understand it. That's the argument, at least. But Regardless, you know, we're all facing the potential specter of Trump. You know, if this does go to trial under Georgia rules, he would have to be in the courthouse and it's going to be televised. So you can picture a situation where in the middle of a presidential election, one of the candidates is facing a televised trial sitting at the defendant's table. Now, a lot of things could happen to make that not be the case, but it's certainly a prospect that's hanging over this whole proceeding. And we have uh, you just mentioned uh, Powell and Cheesebro. We've got a clip from from this week. So based on what's been presented today, I, I, I'm not finding the severance 
from Mr. Chesbro or Powell is necessary to achieve a fair determination of the guilt or innocence for either defendant in this case. And so I'll, I'll deny Mr. Chesbro's motions to sever from Ms. Powell. I'll deny in part uh, Ms. Powell's motion to sever from Mr. Chesbro. And the plan will be to enter a scheduling order for Miss um, Powell mirroring that of Mr. Chesbro with the October 23rd date holding. That's Judge McAfee in Georgia this week. It's the News Roundup. Coming up, we look ahead to the 2024 election. Stay with us. We've still got a lot to cover. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Integrative Therapeutics. With vitamins and supplements previously available only through practitioners, including Cortisol Manager. Unlock your best self with clinician-curated supplements from Integrative Therapeutics, now on Amazon. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. In any great story, there's a moment that sparks your curiosity, tells you there is more to uncover. How, how did this happen? How did we get here? That's where Embedded comes in. We are NPR's home for documentary journalism, immersive and intimate stories. I was stone cold speechless. Nothing will ever, 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 ever be the same here. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to the roundup and turn now to the 2024 elections. The 2024 elections are just over a year away, but the campaigns are in full swing. Just this week, I was in New Hampshire on the campaign trail where former Vice President Mike Pence spoke at St. Anselm College on Wednesday. He said when Republicans vote in the primaries, like that big one in New Hampshire, they will have to decide between two competing ideologies. So today, I ask my fellow Republicans this. In the days to come, will we be the party of conservatism? Or will we follow the siren song of populism unmoored to conservative principles? The future of this movement and this party belongs to one or the other, not both. Naftali, what do you make of that speech? And what are the factions of the GOP that he's talking about? Well, a couple of things. For one thing... Pence, like so many of the other candidates, is looking for some way to create some daylight between himself and Trump, who leads by a huge margin in all the polls. But it's even trickier for Pence because he served under Trump for four years. And so now why to explain, you know, explaining to people why they should not vote for Trump, but should vote for him is a challenge. So he's so, yes, he raised this sort of structure that there's populism and there's conservatism and people have to choose. But I think it's going to be a challenging message for a few reasons. For one thing, he's claiming that Trump back then was a conservative, but now he's a populist. And I'm not really sure that Trump's message, agenda or platform has changed in any significant way. Um, And Pence went along with a lot of these, you know, so-called populist ideas, whether it was tariffs on China or whether it was protecting entitlements, all the things that conservatives might take issue with. Um, And lastly, all the evidence is that the Republican Party is populist. So if people are given a choice between populism and conservatism, there's not a lot of evidence that they would go with the conservative choice. So I think he's doing what he can to try to create this reason for people to vote for him, but I think it's an uphill battle. I mean, he spent a lot of time in that speech hearkening back to Reagan, who, you know, we're talking about four decades ago now. Yeah, and there's a sense that he's talking about and for and to a party that doesn't really exist anymore. And he very much is out of that tradition. You know, he's a very religious man. He's a Midwesterner. He's a very traditional, old-fashioned, if you will, conservative. And it's 
just feels like the party has changed dramatically since then. So I'm not predicting that he's going to fail or anything like that. But I will say that a lot of what he uh, what he delivered seems a little bit out of tune, if you will, with where the party is now. Yeah, Megan, do you want to jump in? What's interesting, you mentioned Ronald Reagan and, and him hearkening to, to Reagan's conservatism. Conservatism. Um, you also see that from, from folks like Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who actually has a, a painting of, of Reagan on his wall and, and went to the Reagan Library and, and did a speech earlier this year and, and frequently talks about that. It really seems to fall on deaf ears within the party, though. It, it's not a selling point. This is not something that is going to motivate particularly primary voters who tend to be the, you know, the the more extremes of the party or the wing, the further out wings of the party um, to get to the to get to the the polls and, and to vote in these particularly in these early primaries. Yeah, I don't know if any of you've been out on the campaign trail at all. But, you know, it, when I've talked to Republican voters the last couple of weeks, both in, in New Hampshire and, and particularly in Milwaukee for the, the primary debate, you know, I, I've heard generally a lot of support for Trump and and that you know matches the polls. Of, of course, there are those voters who who are looking for something new, but they're they're in the minority. I mean, do you think there's any space for for Pence to carve out the daylight here that Naftali was just talking about, Idris? Well, I think Naftali's point that he served uh, in the Trump administration granted him the credibility in 2016 that he needed uh, really undermines his point. I think that there is a point here, which is that, you know, Ronald Reagan occupies still this totemic, uh, you know, aspect within the Republican Party. But there's such a there's been such an inversion in what the Republican Party actually stands for, uh, you know, in place of internationalism and neoconservatism in in terms of foreign interventions. What we have now is isolationism Uh, instead of free trade and and support for, uh, you know, business in some capacity. There's intense skepticism of big business and also uh, an increasing appetite for protectionism, uh, which goes back to the old kind of Republican Party pre its flirtation with Friedman and Hayek and all these folks. But um, what Trump has done is really taken the party back to you know, the America first faction in the 1940s and even before that, the economic system that prevailed then. And I think that's, that's what we see. We were talking earlier about January 6th. The White House hasn't been talking about it a whole lot, but in a rare move, Vice President Kamala Harris told the Associated Press during a trip to Indonesia on Wednesday that she wants all parties involved, including former President Trump, to face the consequences for January 6th. I believe that people should be held accountable under the law. And that extend to the former president? Well, everyone has their right to their day in court, but but absolutely people should be held accountable but under our system of law, right? Let the evidence and facts take it where um, it may. Mm-hmm. Megan, how tight-lipped has the White House been so far on Trump's charges? Well, they haven't wanted to particularly talk about it because they don't want to look like they are trying to improperly influence, particularly the, the federal trials that are that are, are, are set to, to go on in, in the coming months. Um, but remember here, she was really kind of using her former prosecutor roots here and mm. and um and, and putting that out there. She's also been out there more and more on the campaign trail. She's been the face of fundraising for for the Biden Harris campaign. Um and vice presidents do typically play, play this kind of bulldog role. You know, so we might not hear President Biden say that per se, but for Vice President Harris to make these statements is is a lot less alarming. The White House interestingly didn't walk back her statements. Um you know, they said that they felt that she was affirming her belief in, quote, the system of laws in this country and um, and, and didn't try to reverse at all what she said. 
Naftali, what did you hear in that answer from Vice President Harris? Well, I mean, to me, she didn't, you know, set out to break the White House silence. She was pressed pretty hard by the interviewer mm-hmm. who kept mentioning Trump. She didn't mention Trump. She just made a statement that I think is hard to argue with, which is that people who did bad things should face consequences. Now, given the way the whole thing was framed, she appeared to be including Trump in that. Uh, but she was, I thought, worded, worded it very carefully. Um, that said, you know, there's going to come a time uh, when the Biden camp may have to decide whether they're going to more forthrightly make the point that they're running against somebody who's facing criminal charges. And there may come a time when he's really the nominee, which let's remember he's not yet, President Trump, when he's a criminal convict, which again, let's remember he's not yet and may not be, um, when if not President Biden, maybe his super PAC or maybe Democratic senators feel like they want to elevate this issue that the guy on the other side faces criminal charges. It would be political uh, malpractice not to do that. But because President Biden is the chief executive, of course, he himself has to be really careful about that and isn't doing it and probably won't. Why do you think they've been so careful so far, Democrats in the White House? Well, I mean, part of Biden's brand is that he's not going to break norms the way the previous president did. And very high among those norms was to comment on the justice system to say that certain people should be locked up or or were crooks or were criminals. And I think everything about the message that he wants to deliver to the country is he is not like that. He follows the traditions of American politics. And one of those traditions is presidents stay out of criminal cases. Uh, The twist, of course, is that the person who's now facing the charges is also his leading Republican opponent. And that's what makes it so complicated. Sticking with elections for a minute, Idris, you've been looking at how artificial intelligence might affect the upcoming elections. This is already happening. Supporters of Ron DeSantis have used deep fakes to create images of Trump kissing Dr. Anthony Fauci, which again was fake, (laughs) in case we need to say that. How are we already seeing campaigns using AI? And and what else are you watching for? So you're seeing some uses of of generative AI to create these sorts of images. Uh, Ron DeSantis's super PAC, the one that's supporting him, also uh, created a a voice of Trump uh, narrating one of his tweets, um, which was a real tweet, but the the voicing was was fake. Um, And these have gotten a lot of attention um, because, you know, people are worried that this will swamp the information environment and, and do all sorts of other things. Um, I think at the moment, there, there are reasons to kind of carefully tread and, and make sure that we're not running grand-scale experiments on, on American democracy. Uh, but I think that there's also a very uh, healthy kind of doomerous contingent that warns that the 2024 election is basically going to be decided by dueling uh, AI bots. And I think that that's also a little bit uh, uh, too far at the moment. Uh, people somewhat misremember uh, how much misinformation and disinformation humans are capable of creating already on their own. Um, you know, And so for the 2024 election, if Donald Trump is the nominee, there probably will be a, a misinformation problem with elect- electoral integrity, but it will be entirely because of the former president's doing, not because of ChatGPT. Let's turn now to the Maui wildfires. This week, the father of a woman killed in the fires on August 8th filed the first wrongful death lawsuit against the government for its response. The father, whose name is Harold Dennis Wells, accuses the county and the state of negligence and wrongful conduct. Megan, what exactly is he saying that the government did or didn't do? Sure. Well, it's it's not even just the government. The Maui Electric Company and and other um, and others have been named in this suit. It's pretty far ranging, and you know, among the things that that he's saying is that or alleging is that um, you know 
for instance, non-native flammable grasses have been growing in this area that has been getting hotter and drier for years. And that the government and, and that the electric company and, and others have done nothing to try to prevent these fires from happening. They essentially turned a blind eye to it. Um, remember the the warning systems where, you know, there was no warning for this fire. You know, that that's all going to play into this case as well. What are the larger implications for this lawsuit, um, you know, both in Hawaii and maybe more broadly, since we, we are seeing so many of these disasters driven in large part by climate change? Sure. So, you know, it, it's hard to extrapolate out. You know, th- this is a very unusual case, but it, you know, certainly fi- wildfires has have become the norm um, in in the West. Um, we here, even on the East Coast, have have experienced the the smoke from the the fires in in Canada this summer um, that has has led to you know respiratory problems in vulnerable populations, um, and so it it does raise the question of as we see more and more of these climate-driven natural disasters occur, could we see, you know, municipalities or even the federal government be found at fault for being unable to to prevent or to warn citizens about them? And of course, this all puts a lot of burden on emergency managers. FEMA officials say recovery efforts from the Maui wildfires could take years. The same goes for Hurricane Idalia, which hit Florida's Big Bend region last week. Uh, That's the coast around Tallahassee, where the Florida panhandle curves into the peninsula. This week, Florida Republican Senator Rick Scott introduced legislation to fully fund FEMA's disaster relief program and provide tax relief for families affected by the disasters. Naftali, what opposition does Scott's legislation currently face in Congress? Well, what he's what he's trying to do is divorce funding of FEMA from funding of Ukraine. There's a supplemental bill that would do both of those things. Um, but unlike emergency funding, Ukraine really divides the Republican Party, and it puts them in a tough spot. And what he and Senator Rubio, also the senator from Florida, which of course is a state that's subject to a lot of hurricanes and natural disasters, uh, are saying is those things have nothing to do with each other. I think the move is likely to fail just for procedural reasons, but I think that Senator Scott is trying to make this broader point uh, to his voters as much as anything else, that he wants to vote for emergency aid for Americans, but doesn't want to vote for military aid for Ukrainians. Meanwhile, yet another storm is continuing to brew in the Atlantic. Hurricane Lee is currently a Category 5 storm with winds reaching 165 miles per hour. Idris, what threat does that uh, storm pose to the U.S. next week based on the modeling we're seeing so far? Well, it depends on on where it goes. I think there's a chance now that it it safely curves away and and ends up uh, just in the coast and there's a lot of rain around it. But uh, obviously, uh, weather forecasters will be monitoring it to see whether or not it it actually changes course and and veers into into the mainland. Um, You know, Lee was a Category 1 storm just on Thursday. So the the warm waters, which are, of course, a function of climate change in some capacity, uh, have led to it being strengthened, which is one of the things where, uh, even though on an individual basis, it's hard to attribute uh, any natural disaster to climate change itself. The, in aggregate, you see uh, quite a lot of these sorts of episodes. And, and because Americans are so built up along the coastline, uh, that means that the cost of them is going to increase as well. Before we wrap the domestic portion of the news roundup, I'd like to ask you all what you'll be covering in the weeks to come. Naftali, I'll start with you. Well, with Congress coming back and uh, the campaign heating up, I think it's going to be very interesting to see the developing clash between Biden and Congress and how the Republican presidential nominees try to influence that clash as it unfolds. Idris? 
Uh, my colleagues are looking at uh, the possible strikes by organized labor and what that means for Biden's position that he is the most pro-labor president uh, of the century. And Megan. Impeachment. Does Speaker Kevin McCarthy uh, appeal to his restive caucus and move forward with an impeachment inquiry into President Biden? That's Megan Scully, Congress team leader at Bloomberg News. Also with us was Idris Kaloon, Washington bureau chief for The Economist, and Neftali Ben-David, White House editor at The Washington Post. Thanks to you all for joining us. And before we go, we remember singer-songwriter Jimmy Buffett. Wasting away again in Margaritaville Searching for my lost sugar song Parrot heads around the country and the world mourned the loss of Jimmy Buffett this week. Buffett passed away Saturday in his home in New York. He succumbed to Merkel cell carcinoma, a form of skin cancer, after four years. Born on December 25, 1946, in Mississippi, Buffett learned about sailing from his grandfather. He began performing in nightclubs while attending college classes in the 60s. After graduation, Buffett moved to Nashville, where he worked as a journalist for Billboard magazine and pursued a musical career. His first album was released in 1970, but didn't do so well. But that was not the case in 1976 for Changes in Latitudes, Changes in Attitudes. Margaritaville launched Buffett not only into stardom, but into other business ventures as well, including foods, beverages, furniture, home goods, apparel, and even restaurants. Apart from his many businesses and island escapism vibe, Buffett was an avid conservationist, especially in Florida. He was also known for his charity work, including concerts to raise funds for hurricane relief efforts. In 2010, when Haiti was hit by an earthquake, Buffett filled his seaplane with tents and flew to the island. It's only half past 12, but I don't care. Help me out. It's five o'clock In a tribute to her father, Buffett's daughter Delaney wrote he, quote, loved his weed and his wine. Most of the time, he was just high on life. And that is what he wanted for everyone to enjoy the fantastic trip that life can be. Jimmy Buffett was 76. We're going to head to a quick break, and when we return, we dive into the biggest headlines from around the world for the global edition of the News Roundup. Stay with us. It's five o'clock, The Embedded Podcast brings you eye-opening reporting. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Immersive journalism. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Personal stories. I was scared. Like, I can't protect you. We are NPR's home for documentary storytelling. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts.
Do you wish stories could unfold over three hours rather than three minutes? You tired of doom scrolling? Trying to find humanity? Or maybe a deeper understanding of why the world is the way it is? Listen to Embedded, NPR's original documentary series. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. On the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race and identity don't begin or end with the news cycle. That's because we know race and identity impact every person and influence every story. We're getting into all of it with new voices each week on the Code Switch podcast from NPR. Let's turn now to the global edition of the News Roundup. We've got a lot of news to cover, so let's get into it. We'll get the latest on another injection of USAID to the war in Ukraine, discuss Mexico's move to decriminalize abortion, and we'll look ahead to the G20 meeting. The world's leaders are gathering in New Delhi this weekend, but who won't be in the family photo? Don't get angry with me. Don't worry, we've got that Rolling Stones news for you, too. All that and so much more with our panel of experts today. David Rinney is the Beijing bureau chief for The Economist and co-host of the Drum Tower podcast. Hi, David. Hello. Kaylee Lines is an anchor and correspondent at Bloomberg TV. Thanks for being with us, Kaylee. Happy to be here. And Sean Carberry is the managing editor of National Defense Magazine and the author of the new memoir, Passport Stamps, Searching the World for a War to Call Home. And he joins me right here in studio at WAMU. Welcome, Sean. Hi, Sarah. So let's start with Ukraine. On Thursday, a Russian missile attack at a market in eastern Ukraine killed at least 17 people and injured more than 30. It was one of Russia's deadliest strikes on civilians in months. David, I'll start with you. What do we know about this attack and who was being targeted? Well, it's one of these. It's not only one of the most serious attacks on civilians since the spring, but it was like so many of the horrors of this war to date in Ukraine captured on video and then quickly released on social media. So, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty rough stuff to watch, but you can see images circulating online that show the moment of the explosion in this broad daylight uh, shopping area. And uh, we think at least 16 people have been killed, including a child. And then, you know, reporters were able to speak to shopkeepers about how a flash of light kind of appeared in this latest Russian attack, which happened as the American Secretary of State was in uh, Ukraine for a visit. And so you saw the government of Ukraine sort of very quickly circulating these images and saying this shows how evil, that was the word that the president's office used, uh, is the Russian assault on Ukraine. Well, Sean, as Ukrainians prepare for a second winter of Russian attacks, air defense crews are banking on newer and better weapon systems to help them. What does that preparation look like? So it's really a continuation of what's been ongoing for for months. I mean, the United States and allies have been gradually doling out new weapons and systems over the last year or so. Uh, you know, now you have training on F sixteen fighter jets that that's going on. It'll still take some time before those really appear in theater. But you do have things like uh, U.S. Abrams tanks that are about to arrive in theater. Um, so it's it's a continuation of a lot of the same things, but there's still uh, a lot of push in Ukraine for, for more weapons, especially uh, long-range uh, air power, things like the Army uh, attack missile, the long-range missile that Ukraine's been wanting for some time. So, you know, they're really trying to uh, throw as much as they can at the, the Russian defenses now before winter sets in and things get far more difficult to move. You know, especially things like tanks, tracked vehicles are going to be really difficult once uh, winter weather sets in to move. 
And as we heard, this attack on the marketplace came as U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken was in Ukraine to pledge a further $1 billion in aid and continued U.S. commitment and support. I'm here in large part uh, at the behest of President Biden to reaffirm our commitment uh, to stand with you, to stand with you to help ensure that uh, you succeed militarily in uh, dealing with the aggression, but also uh, to stand with you to uh, make sure that uh, your efforts to build a strong economy and a strong democracy succeed. So this is Blinken's fourth trip to Ukraine since the war started. Kaylee, what kinds of advances are we seeing by the Ukrainian military in puncturing Russia's front line? Well, progress started off at least much slower than Ukraine and its allies, frankly, wanted to see, or at least, you know, at the very beginning. But after that slow start, it does seem like the offensive is picking up. Ukrainian forces just last week penetrated the main Russian defensive line in the southeast of the country. It's the first time that they've been able to penetrate that defensive line, puts it in reach of some key targets in Russian-held territory. And of course, while Blinken was there, uh, he spoke in an interview with NBC afterward. He said that Ukraine's military is making very tangible progress, especially over the last several weeks. He said he got a very detailed report from President Zelensky, who had just visited the front lines along with his military advisors. They said they are seeing real forward movement. And of course, as you just mentioned, Blinken, while there, did announce that $1 billion in aid to Ukraine from the U.S. And the West and the U.S., of course, generally have had a role in this offensive, supplying Ukraine with hundreds of armored vehicles like tanks that were just mentioned, training thousands of soldiers for this operation, providing munitions. So while we can't necessarily quantify that impact, it likely has played a role. And as for this package that Blinken announced, it includes for the first time forfeited assets from sanctioned Russian oligarchs. There's a few million dollars of that money in there. It also includes more weapons from Pentagon stockpiles, funds for other equipments, and interestingly, more than $200 million to root out graft in Ukrainian institutions, things like anti-corruption reforms and strengthening the justice sector. Is that's a, that's a new aspect of the package, right? I mean, what's that about? Well, it's about the concern of graft in Ukrainian institutions, of having to root out corruption prevalent in the Ukrainian government. And this is something that the U.S. is uh, clearly signaling needs to perhaps be brought under control in Ukraine. And this is a battle that Zelensky is currently fighting. You know, Sean, one issue for some Republicans is a concern about, uh, in particular, is concerns about U.S. aid being doled out responsibly. Some Republicans are skeptical of providing continuous aid to the country. Uh, What type of corruption issues has Ukrainian President Zelensky been battling within his country? So, again, Ukraine prior to this this episode has been one of the more corrupt countries in in the region. So that's been a a longstanding problem that Zelensky has been been tackling. And and one move that he just made is replacing his defense minister who uh, had been facing some allegations of corruption and uh, misuse of of resources. So he's installed uh, Rustem Umarov who was just approved by parliament this week and that also sort of times to this Russian strike. But uh, Umarov is a longtime anti-corruption advocate and uh, the the knock against him is he doesn't have a lot of defense experience. But the focus is on corruption, which is an important message and I think an important message that Blinken was delivering 
to the United States Congress that everyone is getting serious on that, that that being one of the concerns about sending more aid, uh, that everyone is taking aggressive moves to rein in corruption to try to blunt that pushback in Congress about increasing uh, funds and support. The other side of that is also still looking for more oversight mechanisms to ensure that things are not being diverted the way they were, especially in Afghanistan over the years. Uh, and multiple inspectors general are, uh, are looking at uh, mechanisms to increase oversight at this time to ensure that, that the material that's being provided is being responsibly used. You know, to that end, there was a high-profile arrest in the country this week. And as you've mentioned, Zelensky has pushed his anti-corruption agenda vocally. Is this going to be enough for Western leaders, Sean? Uh, you know, hard hard to predict. I mean, certainly it's it's taking the, you know, the right steps. It's sending the right message. But this, you know, this is not an overnight fix. I mean, you know, corrupt societies don't just flip a switch and all of a sudden, uh, you know, things are, are transparent. And, and Ukrainians and, the, you know, the Western-oriented Ukrainians are very aware aware of this because this affects their potential to join NATO, the European Union. So this is a long-term effort, but it is critical now for them to throw as much at it as possible to reassure skeptics in the West who are starting to lose a little patience about the amount of funding that's going into Ukraine, the amount of support. Uh, so, you know, they, they have to take the, the steps that they can take and, and show that they're serious. But again, it's, it's not a quick fix. On Wednesday, the United States announced that it's sending depleted uranium anti-tank rounds to Ukraine following Britain's lead. Sean, quickly, I'll go back to you. I mean, what is depleted uranium? So depleted uranium is basically a cast off from the enrichment process. And so it's a... Uh, a low radioactive metal, but it's extremely dense, extremely hard, and that's why it's been used in anti-armor munitions really going back to the 70s. The U.S. used them in Gulf War and other places. And, uh, you know, it's highly controversial because there's still some toxic aspects of the material, but they are very powerful at penetrating tank armor or reinforcements and part of what is viewed as necessary for the uh, counteroffensive. This week, there were reports that North Korea's dictator Kim Jong-un may visit Russia soon to meet Vladimir Putin. According to reports, the two leaders could meet in the eastern city of Vladivostok, which is the site of their first get-together as well in April of 2019. David, what can we expect they will be looking for from one another? I think it's fascinating that these reports uh, came not from a Russian announcement or a North Korean announcement, but U.S. officials saying that this might happen and suggesting that it could be about North Korea selling some of its very large stocks of ammunition and weapons to Russia for use in Ukraine. And as people have been pointing out in commentary on this, the U.S. officials have had a pretty good record since the beginning or even before the invasion of Ukraine at trying to embarrass uh, Russia, but it's, it's other countries by revealing these things. But clearly, it would be very bad news if uh, Kim was able to sell large amounts of ammunition to Russia. And it's in a geopolitical sense, it would be pretty tricky for everyone to handle if Kim starts playing the Russians and the Chinese off his two great uh, longtime allies of North Korea and using Russia's desperation to try and play some more room for North Korea's uh, basically criminal regime. Let's shift focus now to India, where the G20 summit starts tomorrow in the capital of New Delhi. One earth, one family, one future ki yehi bhavna 
India's G20 themes include the world is one family and one earth, one family, one future. The 21st century is the century of Asia. It is for everyone. It is quintessential to develop a rules-based post-COVID world order for the betterment of humanity. All of us have a shared interest for the progress of free or open Indo-Pacific region and to embolden the voice of the global south. That's Prime Minister Narendra Modi, narrated by our engineer, Mike Kidd. Thanks, Mike. On Thursday, previewing the G20 in the Indonesian capital, Jakarta. He was speaking there at another gathering, the 20th ASEAN India Summit. The summit in New Delhi will be the 18th G20 meeting and the first to be held in India and South Asia. So, Sean, let's start with who will be there. So who will be there? Uh, for example, President Biden will be there. Um, you know, the G20 is a – unlike the G7, which is really Western economies, uh, the G20 includes uh, France, Germany, UK, but also countries like Brazil, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, South Africa who have been kind of uh, charting their own course lately in terms of Ukraine and things like that. Uh, but two people who won't be there will be uh, Vladimir Putin and President Xi of China. Both have declined for for different reasons. Um, a little bit, you know, Putin. Obviously, it's a complicated situation. But Russia and India do have strong bilateral ties. A lot of military support provided by uh, you know Russia to India. Strong energy ties. Uh, but certainly, China and India have uh, a lot of rising tensions, a lot of rising competition, and uh, at this point, she won't be there, which the United States is hoping opens uh, the opportunity to pull India closer to the United States and the West over the course of the uh, the coming months. So there could be an upside for the U.S. to, to she not being there. Certainly, if, yeah. From U.S. interests, it's it's absolutely an upside. Uh, it's it's an opening to deepen ties. I mean, even just recently, the United States and India signed an agreement to do defense technology innovation together. So the United States is really looking to pull India uh, toward toward the West and break it from China and Russia, and Xi not being there is certainly uh, something that U.S. officials are looking at as a positive opportunity. Now, the Chinese Communist Party has not given any explanation for why Xi Jinping will not be there at the G20. China has traditionally prioritized this meeting, and there's been a great deal of speculation about the reason. David, what does the no-show signal to you? I think there's a couple of big reasons. One is Xi Jinping has had some visits recently where he was absolutely top dog when he set foot on the world stage, particularly we saw the BRICS summit down in South Africa, where he was the undisputed kind of boss of all the countries there and succeeded in getting extra countries allowed to join the BRICS, which is what China's been pushing for a long time, like Saudi Arabia. So going to the G20, where he's only one of several leaders and is potentially, you know, overshadowed by an American president arriving on Air Force One, that doesn't suit Xi Jinping. And then the fact that India is hosting this meeting. And as Sean said, relations are tense. They've got a border dispute. I think the Americans need to be careful about assuming that India is about to wander into the Western camp. I think all the evidence I hear here in Beijing is that India has a very clear policy of looking after India's interests. That means it's not going to break with Russia. It's not going to uh, side with America openly. But their relationship with China is pretty scratchy. And so Xi Jinping is sending his premier, Li Chiang. I think the other final reason is that China, along in fact with Russia and the Saudis at this, are blocking uh, sort of ambitious language on things like climate change, because for various reasons it doesn't suit them. And so for Xi Jinping to turn up and be the representative, the overshadowed representative of a country that is playing wrecker at the G20 just doesn't fit his general posture of, I am the world's great statesman, the leader of the global south. 
Of course, the overarching purpose of the G20 is to be, quote, a forum for international economic cooperation. Kaylee, what do you expect to be the biggest topics of discussion this year? Well, one of them, exactly to your point, likely is going to be the state of the global economy, the health of it, given the uncertainty around the outlook, prospects of potential recessions in countries like the U.S. and elsewhere, the ongoing battle against inflation, how monetary policy factors into that. And Bloomberg actually has reporting out today that a draft communique is planning to warn about quote, cascading crises that are posing challenges to long-term economic growth. And there's other financial matters that may come into discussion here as well, like support for the global South and development funding, reforms at things like the IMF and the World Bank in order to counter to the uh, points that were just made by our colleagues earlier, China and its Belt and Road Initiative, its, its lending power in emerging economies, trying to shore up some of these international development funds uh, to kind of counteract that force. Then on that note, there's a all of the geopolitics, specifically regarding Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We've already discussed that at length, but the Biden administration in particular is really hoping to rally commitment of arms, ammunition, ongoing support uh, for that country. And we know other countries are also pushing for strong language condemning the war in the communique, though that reportedly received at least initial opposition from China, as did some of the measures on climate specifically, as David was just alluding to. That is, though, going to be another topic of conversation. Again, per our reporting on the draft, they're expecting leaders to call for action to limit global temperature increase to pre-industrial levels, or compared to that rather, to one and a half degrees uh, Celsius and peaking of emissions by 2025. So there's a lot to talk about. It's going to be a busy few days for all of those attending. And David, what's the opportunity here for India? I mean, as we said, this is the first time for the G20 to be in India. What does this mean for Prime Minister Modi and what's he going to try to accomplish? There's a worldwide opportunity, which is to continue to push the idea that India is coming of age, that it now has the world's largest population. It's overtaken China, just landed a spacecraft on the moon, that it's really ready to be one of the great powers. It's also an extraordinarily important domestic opportunity for him. He has elections next year, which frankly are expected to be uh, a shoe in for Narendra Modi. But, you know, when the G20 is chaired by the United States or some European countries, the summit most people in their country would not even know it was taking place, except maybe, you know, if you live in Washington, D.C., you think, well, the traffic is terrible. And that's the only thing you know about the G20. If you live in India for the last many months, the G20 is everywhere. Posters, billboards, events in regional capitals, uh, all of them bearing not just the face of Narendra Modi, but often the logo of his ruling party. And as uh, the, 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 the Indian novelist Arundhati Roy said recently, um, you would think that the BJP, Narendra Modi's ruling party, was hosting the G20, not the government Mm. of India. So this is a huge propaganda wing uh, for Narendra Modi domestically. Another little wrinkle this week. On Tuesday, dinner invitations were sent by the Indian government to G20 summit guests. But the invites said that they were from the president of Bharat, not the president of India. Bharat is the traditional Sanskrit name of the country, which is not often used in modern India. Kaylee, that name change stirred up some controversy. Can you just fill us in? Yeah, I mean, it's important to note that both India and Bharat are used interchangeably in India's own constitution. As you say, Bharat is a Sanskrit word. It means India in Hindi. And the fact that this is what was selected to be shown on the invitations in many ways just reflects what is an ongoing effort on the part of Prime Minister Modi and his Hindu national parties to eliminate what it sees as a colonial area name. They argue that the name India was introduced by the British while they were ruling the country for 
two centuries until the mid-20th century, and they say that that name is a symbol of slavery. But there's opposition to this in India. The opposition party is opposed to abandoning that name entirely. There's been some criticism uh, about this effort. So it, it definitely stirred the pot when those invitations went out. Moving on to France, where this week nearly 300 girls showed up to the first day of school wearing abayas. Those are full-body dresses worn by some Muslim girls and women. The girls that wore abayas this week were told to change by authorities, and those who did not were sent home. Official numbers say 67 girls were sent home. France banned abayas in schools and public institutions in August. Public schools must, at any cost, perhaps more than any other institution, be protected from religious indoctrination or from the refusal of our most important common rules. That was the French education minister, Gabriel Attal, and the translation was provided by Al Jazeera. Sean, what justification does the French government provide for banning abayas at school? So this is a continuation of of really something that goes back more than a century uh, when France passed its law basically separating church and state and that's been a defining feature of the country since then. So it's long taken uh, aggressive measures to try to tamp down – religion and the the visuals of religion in public institutions. And then in 2004, it passed the, the law that basically banned overt religious uh, clothing or symbols. So everything from headscarves to wearing crosses, uh, kippahs, things like that. So th- this, is, this has been going on. There's been debate for some time about continuing to extend this and uh, many view Abayas as another overt religious symbol and therefore something that that they want to ban. Uh, This is kicking off even more debate because now you have a lot of people pushing back saying, well, abayas are as much a cultural article of clothing as religious. So, um, you know, a lot lot of pushback and there are legal challenges being raised by by Muslim groups. But again, this this is another sort of iteration in a long-running situation in France where they've been aggressively trying to take religious symbolism out of public institutions. Of course, the big criticism has been that it it seems to be heavily focused against uh, Islamic uh, religious clothing and and symbolism, so that's been where uh, it's it's been centered around the, that that dispute. Sean, has there been any serious pushback from other religious groups in France against these policies? So so far, the I mean, the main pushback has been from uh, uh, Muslim groups, and the, the, because they they do represent the the larger segment of society. You know, interestingly, you have actually another dimension that's going on with this, where the Ministry of Education is going to trial having uniforms in schools. Uh, something that's actually been pushed heavily by the Catholic community. And for example, the uh, the French president's wife, who grew up in Catholic schools, has been an advocate for, for uniforms. Uh, so there's sort of this, this dual movement going on. Um, at, you know, at this point, given the the history of these things, it, you know, legal challenges will, will play out, but hard to tell what you know, whether the Abaya ban will uh, be pushed back or whether that will be added to the list of things that have been banned in schools. Al Jazeera spoke to Lubna Ragig, who's president of the organization Muslim Students of France. She questioned why the ban targeted students like her. It's Muslim women, women from immigration. This shows how this is inherently racist. 
You know, David, Sean just mentioned legal challenges continue. Uh, where do they go from here? Well, the, the, there were several groups who sued uh, right up to the, 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 the Conseil d'État, which is the Supreme Court for the administrative side of French law, and they lost their case, uh, their appeal. And it was a pretty brutal ruling given by the judges who said that this ban on uh, religious clothing, including in this case, obviously, the abaya, does no serious harm to fundamental rights including religious freedom. And I think this is one of those issues where for non-French people, it's very hard to understand how even pretty liberal French people really feel that they are not siding with racists, but they are defending the secular sort of society that they think is important. Actually, my kids went to French international schools their whole lives, including in Washington, D.C. And, you know, they take it pretty seriously. At Christmas, there are no Christmas carols. There's no Christmas manger. They sing, you know, songs about snowmen and stuff. So that's the light side of it. But there is, unfortunately, an element of the far right in France who, as they campaign on the idea that immigrants are changing the face of France and French cities, they clearly are targeting the idea that the presence of a buyers, uh, the presence of Muslim headscarves in French schools uh, is a sign that France is losing its essential identity. And there, as Sean says, you're seeing Muslim groups saying with some justification that this doesn't seem to be only about religious symbols. This seems to be about identity in a much darker way. Mm. We're talking with The Economist's David Rennie, Bloomberg's Kaylee Lines, and Sean Carberry from National Defense Magazine. Moving on to Israel now, where Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has been in talks with Ukraine President Volodymyr Zelensky about increasing support for Kyiv amid the ongoing Russian invasion. A statement from Netanyahu's office about the meeting between the leaders says the two leaders discussed, quote, the continuation of Israeli assistance to Ukraine, including to Ukrainian refugees in Israel, as well as the advancement of development assistance of civilian air defense systems. Kaylee, Israel has supported Ukraine diplomatically, but it has not supplied the country with arms, as many other allies have done. Why is that? Well, and this is one of the reasons why the relationship between Israel and Ukraine is quite tense right now. And when we had a phone call between Benjamin Netanyahu and President Volodymyr Zelensky, uh, according to this statement, this was the first time this has happened in, in nine months. And part of that was an effort of Netanyahu raising the issue of his Israeli pilgrims who want to travel to the Ukrainian city of Uman for Rosh Hashanah uh, in mid-September. But to your point on the assistance, yes, they have supplied Ukraine with ample humanitarian assistance, also defensive equipment, so think helmets and, and things like that. But ever since Russia's invasion of Ukraine last year, Israel has made it very clear that it does not want to antagonize Russia. It wants to avoid doing that. And as a result, it would not be supplying Ukrainian the Ukrainian military with weapons. Also, because Russia controls a lot of Syria's airspace, or at least its military does, and Israel wants to preserve those channels of communication that allow its, its jets to operate freely there. So it's more concerned about the invader that is limiting some of the help Israel is able to offer to the invaded. And Kaylee, this week, President Biden appointed former Treasury Secretary Jack Lew as the next ambassador to Israel. If confirmed by the Senate, he would play a critical role in facilitating diplomatic relations. You know, how might his appointment help smooth things over? Well, it's important to note Jack Lew has been around the block, right? He's a former U.S. Treasury Secretary. He served as Barack Obama's budget director, as White House Chief, White House Chief of Staff in that administration. So he's got quite a resume. And obviously his nomination comes at a time when relations between the U.S. and Israel are delicate, 
shall we say. Um, the Biden administration, of course, has been almost unusually outspoken over Netanyahu's planned judicial overhaul. That has caused a bit of tension. And of course, President Biden invited the Israeli President Herzog to the White House earlier this year, but did not invite Netanyahu. So how could the tapping of Jack Lew help that situation? First and foremost, it would put someone back in the ambassador post in Jerusalem. There hasn't been someone there uh, since July. But the other thing is, this is a seasoned official, and he has a record with Israel. Back in the 1990s, he helped organize organized funding for Israel, secured money for its defense under the Clinton and Obama administrations. So his nomination likely sends a a signal to Israel that the U.S. is taking this relationship seriously. David, let's dig a little bit deeper into what's happening around the judicial reform bill there. Netanyahu said on Tuesday that he's willing to compromise with opposition party leader Benny Gantz on the judicial overhaul legislation that curbed the court's oversight powers. But this is not the first time the two have floated such a compromise. What's new, David, about this latest push? Well, we're seeing leaks of a one-page document which su- supposedly summarizes some of the talks between representatives of Bibi Netanyahu and the opposition. Those talks are bro- uh, brokered and, and sort of overseen by the president, Herzog. And if the leaks are accurate, uh, although Bibi Netanyahu has denied some of them, um, they would freeze any further laws to reign in the any f- uh, further laws being passed through parliament to freeze. Uh, to to limit judicial powers for 18 months. And they would actually scrap, if the leaks are right, a new committee that was going to essentially give the government much more ability to choose justices for the Supreme Court. And remember that one law has already been passed, which limits the Supreme Court's ability to overrule the government. And there is, again, talk that they might soften some of those measures. So It's very murky. We're seeing leaks flying around the Israeli media. But there is, I think, a sense that those massive street protests, including not let's let's not forget, you know, reservists, some of the fighter pilots needed to keep Israel's skies safe, joining those protests against this judicial reform that's really united a very, very broad front against Bibi Netanyahu. And so although he has this narrow majority in parliament, there is a sense that he understands something in addition to pressure from allies like the United States, has to give. And so maybe some of these leaks point to a direction of compromise that may have some legs in it. Moving now to Cuba, which says it has disrupted a scheme in Russia to recruit Cuban citizens to fight in Ukraine. In a statement, Cuba's foreign ministry called the alleged plan a human trafficking ring. It said Cubans, both in Russia and on the island, had been recruited to fight in Russia's war against Ukraine. Sean, what do we know about this ring? So, yeah, as you noted, I mean, Cuba uh, Cuba released this information. They released a statement saying that they had uncovered uh, this ring that was involving both taking Cubans who are currently living in Russia and trying to force, coerce, whatever, into fighting in Ukraine, uh, but also trying to uh, take people currently in Cuba – and uh, get them into the fight. It's it's unclear whether this is a Wagner Group initiative, whether it's a government, whether it's a hybrid, which is probably more likely since most things seem to be a, a hybrid between the two. Uh, but th- this is another example of sort of a wider effort that uh, that Russia has been been doing around the world in terms of trying to find people to throw into combat. I mean, they've they've 
you know, run through their own convicts and conscripts. Uh, but there have been cases of them uh, getting Syrians to join the fight, uh, Iraqis, Afghans. Uh, so, but what's interesting about this is the fact that Russia and Cuba have had, you know, very strong ties for for a long time, uh, and the fact that Cuba was so uh, basically incensed by this and. Uh, has a history of of opposing mercenary activity and calling out the rest of the world. Uh, so they highlighted that in their statement saying that, you know, they, they don't support this, they want no part of it, uh, and they want to make sure that Cuba is not being tarnished by Russia's uh, activities, uh, and they, you know, they want no part of, of this activity. On to Mexico. The Supreme Court there has decriminalized abortion. On Wednesday, the high court ruled all national laws prohibiting abortion unconstitutional. The ruling also requires all federal health providers and institutions to offer the procedure to anyone who requests it. Kaylee, I'll start with you. This comes two years after Mexico first decriminalized abortion in one of the nation's northern states. How did Mexico get to this moment? Well, as you say, this kind of started two years ago when it was a Supreme Court decision that that ruled to decriminalize it in this one state. And since then, we have seen kind of a piecemeal move on a state-by-state basis across now 12 of the 32 states in the country to decriminalize it. But now the Supreme Court has taken it further with this much more sweeping ruling. National laws prohibiting abortion are now unconstitutional. The court said they violate the human rights of women and people with the ability to gestate and and order that abortion be removed from the uh, the federal criminal code. Uh, code. Again, though, we are talking about the federal level here. There are still 20 men Mexican states that criminalize abortion. So even while these state judges will have to abide by this decision, it's going to take a lot more work uh, and legal work to remove all of the penalties in the country. It's not that every woman in Mexico is immediately going to be able to access an abortion, but again, they are going to be able to seek one in federal institutions. Uh, so that that's really what's different here is that this now is federal and, and it opens the door uh, to it being decriminalized across the entire country in all of those states. David, Mexico's decision also comes as other Latin American nations make moves to decriminalize abortion, uh, thanks to abortion rights activists and what's known as the Green Wave movement in Latin America. In 2020, Colombia decriminalized abortion up to 24 weeks of pregnancy. Last year, lawmakers in Ecuador legalized abortion in cases of rape. Also last year in Chile, lawmakers began finding ways to codify women's rights in the country's new constitution. David, how big of a victory is this uh, decision in Mexico for the Green Wave movement that I just mentioned? Well, clearly, uh, the Green Wave or the, the Green Tie, the Marea Verde that they talk about, this is a big victory for them, although there's going to be work patiently state by state. And as you say, that we've seen this in Argentina, we've seen this in Colombia. There are still some states in Latin, uh, Latin America, Central America, like El Salvador and Guatemala that still have almost total abortion bans. But I think even as feminists and and uh, pro-choice activists celebrate, there is, I think, grounds for concern that this isn't a whole a wholesale shift of public opinion being argued in kind of you know the streets across Latin America where people have embraced the idea of choice. These are often legal wins. So these are lawyers going to Supreme Courts uh, and arguing that a woman is being discriminated against. Uh, in a way that is unconstitutional. And I think the American example, which is clearly studied very closely by Latin American feminists, is that you can achieve very rapid successes, as with Roe v. Wade. But when these things are 
legal wins based on on narrow interpretations of a constitution as opposed to a wholesale shift in public opinion, partisan politics can come back and reverse those gains. And I think that is why there is celebration, but clearly anxiety still in Latin America about the fact that these are court wins rather than sweeping political shifts. You know, it's interesting that at the same time, Mexico, for the first time ever, is set to have two female candidates running in their presidential election this year, both from the main political parties in the country. So it looks like Mexico will have a female president. Uh, And then, of course, we just had this newest move to decriminalize abortion that we were just discussing. Kaylee, how significant are these strides for women's rights? And, And also, how much might they be a pushback to what's happening in the U.S.? That's a that's a really good question. Obviously, we've seen the ripple effects of the overturning of Roe v. Wade, of the Dobbs decision in the U.S. and our own elections kind of on a state-by-state basis and certainly showed up in the 2022 midterms. So you have to think that the effect of that could could ripple elsewhere beyond uh, just the U.S. as it becomes just a question of women's human rights and, and the rights to choose to access this. Uh, but to your point, the consequence of, of Mexico, in all likelihood, barring there is some you know, upset, some surprise third party victory is going to elect a female president because the the two nominees of both the opposition party uh, and the governing party are are women. And it shows, you know, there is potentially more momentum now than ever before to actually shattering that very highest glass ceiling. Obviously, in Mexico, we have seen women making more and more strides at different strata of government. But this in particular uh, is pretty unprecedented. And it it clearly is the result uh, of, of a movement that has been picking up steam. Moving now to Europe, where extreme weather is affecting millions. Deaths from heavy rain and flooding this week have been reported in Greece, Turkey, and Bulgaria. Some areas in central Greece got more rainfall in a day than they usually see in a full year. Greece's prime minister is touring flooded areas today and has asked the EU for financial help. Earlier in the week, torrential rain and flooding in central Spain led Madrid to close the city's metro. Of course, we're seeing severe weather here in the United States as well. You know, Sean, meanwhile, the UK and parts of France are seeing record-breaking heat waves. What's happening here? Uh, the simple answer is omega. Um, that the omega uh, pattern or the omega block, as it's being called, is a jet stream pattern that's basically locked in over Europe at the moment. So essentially, the the jet stream, which runs sort of uh, you know up along the Atlantic seaboard, across the Atlantic, and then slopes down. So it's sloping down over Spain, looping back up over the UK and Europe, and then back down over sort of the Balkan areas, creating again the the shape of the omega in the uh, Greek alphabet. And there's a low pressure system on the one side over Spain, another low pressure system on the other side over the Greek Balkans area, and the high-pressure system stuck in the middle. And it's basically been frozen there for the better part of the last week, causing this heat dome in the center and these immense, just absolutely historic rains in in the two locations in the low-pressure area. So it's it's another phenomenon that uh, people are saying it's, it's a function of warming sea temperatures and other aspects of climate change. Uh, but the impact, as you noted, is that Greece in particular is getting – levels of rain in a matter of a day or so that it sees typically in a year. And this is coming after weeks of epic fires in Greece. So you had what uh, the EU said, the biggest wildfires in Europe since they started tracking that. 
happening for the better part of August, and now Greece is getting hit with uh, torrential rain and mudslides. So uh, this is an unusual weather pattern that's wreaking havoc across Europe right now. And David, how equipped, you know, is the European Union to help with this? We just heard Greece's prime minister is asking for help, but this is widespread. Are are international organizations going to be able to respond with this increasing amount of extreme weather? Well, I think your last mention of international organizations should remind us that although we shouldn't take away for a moment the suffering in Greece right now and in Spain before that, this is a global problem. And the truth is that rich countries like the US or countries in Europe they are going to be able to rebuild. They're going to be able to compensate farmers. They have some of the firefighting, flood fighting capabilities. Where these climate records that keep falling, record heat waves, record wildfires, record flooding, record rains, we've seen them over here in China. Hong Kong just had its heaviest rain in 140 years last night. Uh, Beijing, where I am, we had terrible floods here a few weeks ago. These records keep falling all over the world. And of course, where they're going to have the cruelest impact is in the weakest, poorest countries, places like sub-Saharan Africa, where if you want to understand why we're seeing so much, uh, you know, so many coups, so much unrest, so much famine, so much misery, climate is one of the drivers. And those are the least able countries to withstand the effects of climate change. And on that note, the UN's climate agency announced this week that July 2023 was the hottest month ever recorded, followed only by August. The UN report included some good news. Research in Brazil showed that parks and trees in urban areas benefit everyone. They improve air quality, absorb carbon dioxide, and lower temperatures. David, I also wanted to go back quickly to something we talked about earlier in the program. When the North Korean leader travels, there are always stories, possibly lore, about the trains used to undertake this journey. We were talking about the meeting, the potential meeting between Kim Jong-un and uh, Vladimir Putin. Let's start with, I want to talk about why trains. Why are they always the focus here? Well, remember that Kim Jong-un in his 30s is a hereditary dictator. He's the third generation Kim. His grandfather and particularly his father liked to travel by armored train. In the case of his father, we believe that he was terrified of flying in case he was shot down. Um, And he would travel in some style. The father, you know, famously a Russian diplomat, took a two-week trip with him and came back and wrote about the lobsters and the fine French wines served on this enormous armored train. Remember that North Korea was starving to death at the time of this luxury Actually, the son, Kim Jong-un, although he does, like his father and grandfather, prefer to travel by train, he's a relative kind of flyboy by North Korean dictator standards because he actually took a plane down to the beating with Donald Trump in Singapore a couple of years ago, although he had to take an Air China Boeing jumbo jet because the North Korean planes are so old and so unreliable. They're old Soviet planes that there was a risk that he would break down and get stuck in an embarrassing way. So he had to settle for arriving on a Chinese plane for that summit with Donald Trump. All right. Well, you've sated my curiosity. Thank you. I just had to know. And a big thanks to our panelists this hour, David Rennie, Beijing Bureau Chief for The Economist and co-host of the Drum Tower podcast, Kaylee Lines, anchor and correspondent at Bloomberg TV, and Sean Carberry, managing editor of National Defense Magazine and author of the memoir Passport Stamps, Searching the World for a War to Call Home. And before we go, there's a new Rolling Stones album on the horizon. The band launched Angry, the first single from their new studio album, Hackney Diamonds. The album was announced during a live Q&A with comedian Jimmy Fallon. Here's singer Mick Jagger speaking with Fallon on the album's title. Uh, this, this, but this Hackney Diamonds, isn't it like a, 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 a type of uh, slang? 
Yeah. Well, it's, it's, like, oh, yeah. Uh, it's like when you get your windscreen broken uh, on Saturday night in Hackney, all around, <laughs> and, uh, and all the bits go on the street. Yeah, the shattered yeah. windscreen. That's, that's called Hackney Dime. That's Hackney Dime. That's Hackney Dime. That's Hackney Dime. The album is set for release on October 20th. It features 12 new songs with some legendary guest contributors, including Paul McCartney and Lady Gaga. It's the band's first album in 18 years. It's also the first since the death of their drummer, Charlie Watts, who recorded two songs with the band before his death in 2021. The band celebrated their 60th anniversary last year. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer with help from Kellen Quigley. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior managing producer. Aileen Humphreys is the editor and producer of 1A On Demand with help from Matthew Simonson. Barabangiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm NPR's Sarah McCammon. Thanks for listening. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you're carrying around a lot of stress, therapy is a safe space to get it off your chest. If you're considering therapy, give BetterHelp a try at betterhelp.com NPR to get 10% off your first month. With more and more information coming at you all day, every day, it can be hard to know where to focus. The new Consider This newsletter from NPR can be that focus. Every weekday afternoon, we take one of the day's biggest stories and break it down in a simple, skimmable format so you can get a better grasp of one important topic and what it means for you in a couple of minutes. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter. Every weekday, NPR's best political reporters come to you on the NPR Politics Podcast to explain the big news coming out of Washington, the campaign trail, and beyond. We don't just want to tell you what happened, we tell you why it matters. Join the NPR Politics Podcast every single afternoon to understand the world through political eyes.